the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you who know about the show, the show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion, nostalgia. We're, we're going to be talking a little bit about history, religion, and nostalgia, I guess, all in one. We're going to talk to Wayne A. Vandeval, and he's written a book about Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. And it's a fictional history about the real St. Nicholas who lived, who was born in the year 270. We're also going to be talking to one of our favorite authors, Joe Pierce. For those who remember Joe Pierce from our previous shows, Joe Pierce is one of those guys. He was in England, far-right fanatic, imprisoned for a couple of years for hate speech. The second time he was imprisoned for hate speech, he was so depressed, he was ready to give it up, and then he found his conversion to the Lord. So that's Joe Pierce. we got a full house as far as uh, questions go today. So first, I think we're going to hear from Vincent, and Vincent's letter is going to be read by my son, Michael. Yep. All right. So this is one of our email questions. Mr. Connors, my father was married to his wife for 22 years. He died in March. I recently found out he left a house in my name. My stepmother has not mentioned the house to me at all. I don't know if he has a will, and nor do I know how to go about finding out. He also has properties in his name alone, although she has properties as well. I believe she has stolen money owed to me. How can I go about fighting for my father's things? Do I have a fighting chance? I am his firstborn. That's from Vincent. Okay, Vincent. Well, first being firstborn means nothing. Of course, I don't know if you have any brothers or sisters, but I assume you have brothers and sisters. Otherwise, you wouldn't be the firstborn. You'd be the only child. Here's the thing. If your stepmother has not applied to be administrator of your father's estate, you're entitled to file to petition to be the administrator of your father's estate. And in effect, in this case, may be going on a fishing expedition. You say there's a house left in your name. Well, that's a good start. We can check the deed records, make sure the house is in your name. And then whatever assets in your father's name alone would go through court ordinarily or would go through court. And if he has a will, it goes probably according to his will. If he doesn't have a will, well, then basically the assets would be split half to his wife and half to the children. And there are all sorts of variables on that. Did they sign a prenuptial agreement? Did they sign a separation agreement? We don't know right now. So the first step, I guess, come in, 
see a lawyer, apply to be the administrator of your father's estate. If your stepmother has a will, I'm pretty sure it's going to come out at that point, and then we have a roadmap from, from where to go. And also, I'd like to see if the house is in your name. How is it in your name? Is it is it in your name because your father left it in his will, or is it in your name because he put your name on the deed before he passed away or a trust agreement or whatever? But that's one stop. Start gathering some of the facts and, and then go from there. But if there's a house in your name, hopefully, you know, you're going to get something out of the the game. And again, if your father didn't have a will, half would go to his wife and the assets in his name alone, which is say they are properties in his name alone, and then half would go to his wife. One of the things, too, if your father has substantial assets, and it seems like he might, whatever passes to his wife goes out tax-free. If he's a New York State resident, he already died in March, if he has more than 5740000 in his name, that part of his estate that passes his children will be subject to an estate tax. But that's something to look at. That means more than five million seven hundred forty thousand went to the children. So if five million goes to the children, five million goes to the wife. There'd be no tax. But nothing's going to happen until you get started. If you do want to give us a call, at Connors and Sullivan, you can give us a call at seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred. Next on de- deck, Josias, what's your question? Okay, good afternoon, everybody. The next question is from Mister Max, and he asks. Dear Mr. Connors, can you talk about long-term care insurance? Should I consider it as a way to protect assets? The first question is, can you afford long-term care insurance? For those of you not out there, long-term care insurance is basically nursing home insurance. You know, yes, you can get, uh, you know, long-term care insurance to pay for home care. But in New York, there are a lot of good programs to pay for home care through the Medicaid program. But It's basically nursing home insurance. And here's when I especially recommend nursing home insurance. One, if you can afford it, I would always recommend that you buy long-term care insurance. And the problem is if you're over 65, the cost of a good long-term care policy to cover all your needs might be seven or $8,000 a year, depending on your health. So it's expensive, but if you can afford it, pay it. But here's the people that, that really need long-term care insurance. Those people that have high pensions, police office might have a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollar a year pension. I mean, those people, you know, that spent years and years building up their pension and their social security plans. Those people have an enormous amount of money in IRA, 401k, retirement plans. Why? Because if let's say somebody has a million dollar house or a couple of million dollar houses, husband has a stroke, we can switch those houses to the spouse. And then the spouse in that case can sign what we call a spouse refusal, and most of the assets would be protected. At the same time, let's say we have somebody who's got a $100,000 pension. Let's say the husband has a $100,000 pension. The wife has $20,000 a year income, pension, Social Security. Well, if the husband goes to a nursing home, a lot of that income is going to be lost to the nursing home. We can transfer assets, but we can't transfer income, Social Security, pension. Yeah, the spouse has a, a right to sue for support or whatever. But for the most part, let's say if, if somebody, the husband or even the wife, let's say the wife's a school teacher, got a lot of money tied up in a TDA, teacher's uh, tax-deferred annuity. Those assets we can't switch over because if we take the assets out of the TDA, we're paying an income tax. And a lot of times the income tax hit is as bad or if not worse than what you might have to pay for a nursing home. So if you have substantial assets in either in income, Social Security, 403B, 401K, retirement plans, then we want to seriously think about getting long-term care insurance. Because if you do have a lot of money tied up in those plans, guess what? You can afford it. Now, at the same time, and this sometimes some people try to sell a couple the long-term care insurance for both of them. Well, let's say let's say the the wife's a school teacher, she's got a hundred thousand dollars a year income. The husband worked in his own business, and he has twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year income. Well, then we want the long-term care policy 
on the person who has the most income. Protect the spouse who's not going to go to the nursing home. Let's say you got a husband and wife. Husband's got $100,000 income. Wife's got $20,000 income. She didn't work. Well, wife goes to a nursing home. The husband get by on his $100,000 a year pension and Social Security or vice versa. So that in that case, that's when you need long-term care insurance. If you've got a lot of money tied up in retirement plans and Social Security, combination of Social Security and pension, then you need the long-term care insurance. If you can afford it, I always would get recommend getting long-term care insurance because it gives you more protection, more freedom. You know, there's not a right answer for everybody, but that that's why if you come into our office, we can talk it over. And again, we do not sell long-term care insurance. But if you come to our office and you want a recommendation of somebody who sells long-term care nursing home insurance, you're more than welcome to come in and, and we'll talk it over and give you some, some recommendations, whatever. Again, we do not sell long-term care insurance, but again, if you can afford it, we strongly recommend you purchase it. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my wife, Beth. Yes, I'm here. Okay, well, Beth, you're the next person on deck. What's your question? Well, my question is from Karen. Hi, Mr. Connors. What can I do as I want to sell the property that I own with my brother, but he is refusing to sell? Please help. Well, Karen, the one remedy available to you under the law you're allowed to, in effect, go to court and ask for a partition sale. 90% of the time when you do that, the case gets settled by a referee and, you know, there's pressure on your your brother to sell. If you play, you know, and sometimes it's a game of chicken, the house can go up for sale in an auction and you can bid on it, your brother can bid on it and hopefully bid it up so you get a decent enough 
price. Now, partition action is expensive. It takes a long time. But if you can't work it out with your brother and you want to sell and he doesn't want to sell, that's sometimes the only remedy you have. You can might be able to put pressure on things one way or another. But the only way you can effectively get the ball moving is start a petition action, which is going to court. We don't like going to court. That's, in effect, suing your brother. But if he's not going to cooperate, that's about the only thing you can do. Each week, Kevin McCullough plays one of our questions. You can hear Kevin McCullough Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock on 970 The Answer, 3 o'clock on Monday through Friday on WMCA The Mission at 3 o'clock. And, of course, on Wednesdays he has an extra hour because he's sharing the show with uh, John Katsimatidis. So take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every Thursday we talk with Mike Connors and try to get one of your questions answered as it relates to your estate care and elder law. Uh, Mike, this week's question comes from Mary. My 50-year-old husband died suddenly. We have four children together. We never thought at our age we needed to be prepared for death. Our house was only in his name, and we didn't have a will. I'm exhausted thinking about how to fix this moving forward. How do you help this person, Mike? Well, you know, I, this would be, you know, the the classic, I told you so, everybody should have a will. A lot depends on how old the children are. Um, if they don't want to sell the house, we don't have to do anything right away. You know, mom can live in the house or whatever. If the children are under the age of 18 to sell that house, we're going to have to go to court and need a court order to do so uh, since there's no will. And if the children are under 18, now if the children are over 18, Everybody can get together and do some kind of agreement or deal or whatever. And of course, I hope he doesn't have children from a prior marriage who may not be cooperative. And so that uh, that just adds to the headaches uh, that they've got. But this this really illustrates, uh, Mike. I mean, this kind of hits home for me because I'll be fifty next year. Uh, this is why uh, you, you you get your stuff in order so that uh, you don't have right. to go through these things. Right. I mean, there, there, there is a problem. If one of those children at 50 years old is a good shot, one of those children are under the age of 18, they, the children own half the house collectively. The four children own half the house, and that's assuming she says we have four children together. Right. If there's a child from prior marriage, that child from prior marriage owns part of the house. So there's a claim on all of it. And, friends, this is why you need to be prepared. It is so vital that you talk through uh, what you need to do in advance. And that's why I love to tell you about uh, Connors & Sullivan. They do it better than anybody else. Their peers say so. And here's the number to connect you with them today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. You can also drop a question to Mike Connors. He'll answer one each week here on Kevin McCullough Radio. And then he asks uh, answers a bunch of them on his own broadcasts, uh, Saturday. Saturday morning at 8 on AM 570, The Mission, and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again to Kevin McCullough. Beth, you know, our next guest, he wrote a book of fictionalized history, St. Nicholas. His name is Wayne Vandervall. Some people forget that St. Nicholas was a real person, and he was born in, in roughly two in the year 270. So it was turbulent times. He was first persecuted in his early years. And, of course, later on, Constantine becomes yeah. he lived emperor to see the, of Rome, and he, he lived to see the, the conversion of Rome to Christianity. But how much do you know about the real St. Nicholas? Didn't the real St. Nicholas help some, some girls by putting some money in their shoes? Yeah, well, apparently he was a very rich man who gave away a lot of his wealth. And, you know, his parents were Christian. And we're going to hear more about that from uh, Wayne Vanderbilt. Of course, we have our own little uh, 
you know, affection for uh, St. Nicholas because I was born but on December our, 6th. There's more than, Mike, there's more than one St. Nicholas. I know that. We're talking about St. Nicholas of Myra, who I was born on the feast day of St. Nicholas of Myra, December 6th, which is how I got my middle name. I'm Michael Nicholas, for those of that don't know it. And, of course, I was born on the feast day of St. Nicholas of Tolentine, as was my great-grandfather, your grandfather. So that's another Michael Nicholas. So that's why we have three generations of Michael Nicholases. We're born on, Michael and, and my grandfather were born on September 10th, which is the feast day of St. Nicholas of Tolentine, which was a, an Italian saint. And of course, Santa Claus, his feast day is December 6th. That's the day we celebrate a St. Nicholas Day. And in, in some parts of Europe, it's called Little Christmas. Sometimes, you know, they call Epiphany the Little Christmas. Depends what com- what country you are in Europe. But anyway, we're going to be talking about Santa Claus and how the real St. Nicholas evolved into Santa Claus as we know Santa Claus today. And, of course, the lessons we can get from St. Nicholas's lifetime. And, again, the, the real St. Nicholas lived in turbulent times. He was first persecuted. He spent time in jail, in prison. shouldn't say jail, prison. And eventually, you know, was at the, the Council of Nicaea in the early part of the church history. So... Wayne Vanderville, next on Connor's Corner. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Do you want to hear your parish priest talk more about abortion and the pro-life movement? The key mission of Priests for Life is to help priests do exactly that. The first place to start is to listen to your priest and learn how he thinks. What is he most interested in and passionate about? Then, when you find out, link that issue with the abortion issue. For example, a priest who told me that he did not preach much about abortion also told me he was interested in efforts to stop drug abuse. When I told him that those who have abortions are more likely to abuse drugs, it gave him a new motive to preach about abortion. Find out more about how you can help your priest at priestsforlife.org. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. BQ.org. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Fixing the blitzing and all his reindeer. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. It's Christmas time, and everywhere you look, there are images uh, of Santa Claus. But maybe we should talk a little bit about the real Santa Claus, the real St. Nicholas. And to help us with that is Wayne Vanderwell. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Mike. All right, Wayne. So you got a book out, The Gospel of Santa Claus. Now, was Santa Claus a real person? Absolutely, yeah. He was a true historical figure. And he has a, a amazing, fascinating, inspiring story that hardly any of us any of us know. Where was he from, and when was he born? Okay, he was born in 270 A.D., so just a couple hundred years after Jesus was around. And uh, he was born in the country at that time. It was called Lycia. Today, it's known as the country of Turkey. Back then, this is before Constantine converted to Christianity. So what was the Roman government like? Well, it was definitely the Roman Empire at the time. So it's interesting. Uh, Nicholas was born to Christian parents living in uh, Lycia, uh, which was a Greek culture. And but they were ruled by the Roman Empire. And at the time when he was born, actually, uh, the Roman Empire was going through some rough times. They couldn't keep an emperor within Nicholas's first 10 years of life. They went through uh, eight to ten emperors that either got killed off or died off. And it wasn't until uh, after that that Emperor Diocletian came to power, and he managed to stay in power for a good 25 years after that. And there were some persecutions under Diocletian. Yeah, yeah. So uh, later in his life, uh, Nicholas became a priest and a bishop in the church, and uh, Diocletian uh, did not like Christians. Uh, you know, he was Roman, so of course he had the Roman gods. And uh, but as he uh, rebuilt the Roman Empire into a, a world power again, he eventually proclaimed himself as a god and expected everyone to bow and worship him. And of course, the Christians wouldn't. They had their one triune god. And uh, so, hence, uh, so if anything happened bad with the empire, he would blame the Christians uh, for not worshiping their gods, not worshiping him. And so he persecuted them, and he uh, created some edicts that uh, were formal uh, laws of persecution. He burnt down Christian churches, confiscated all their properties, and uh, tortured them, a lot of documented torturings, and imprisoned them. And in fact, uh, Nicholas was imprisoned for five years. So Santa Claus has done time in the big house. All right. Well, how how come we know so much about Santa Claus, St. Nicholas? This is almost 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of uh, church uh, history, you know, because uh, as time went on, he did become a saint in the church. Uh, so there's, you know, quite a bit of documentation as far as... Uh, artifacts and church uh, history goes. And uh, there's not known much more beyond what I've been sharing. Uh, there's a little more to it as far as his childhood and who he was born 
he was born to wealthy Christian parents, which was interesting, to be wealthy in a Greek culture, in a Greek country, ruled by the Roman Empire. And his parents died when uh, they were young, when he was young, and he inherited all their uh, vast fortune. Um, I'm not sure how much you want me to go into to his history, but as far as uh, the documentation, you know, there's a bit of it. You know, it's limited, but but uh, the book is based on uh, the limited bo- uh, knowledge we have. Now, is your book a history book? Is it work of fiction? What is it? Yeah, well, it's, I call it a historical fiction. So uh, the outline that I'm talking, sharing with you about, you know, when he was born, the time period, uh, he was born to wealthy Christian parents. Uh, they died when he was young in the plague. He inherited their vast fortune. Uh, he felt called by God to give it away. And that started the tradition, uh, of him giving to the poor and the sick and the suffering. And then later going on, become a priest and bishop, uh, in the church being persecuted, imprisoned. Uh, so all that's in the book, uh, in addition to a uh, few other various things. Now, how did St. Nicholas become Santa Claus? Okay, so now you have to fast forward uh, quite a ways. You know, so he is pretty much St. Nicholas around the world. I'm not sure if I mentioned about, you know, when he was a bishop, he was a uh, bishop in a uh, port city in today's Turkey, back then Lycia, uh, called Myra. And it was on the Mediterranean uh, sea, which was the really the center of the world at that point for trading with Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and uh, Europe, all trading. So he had access to to people from all over the world. Uh, so he was known around the world as Saint Nicholas. Uh, he was very popular uh, around the world, and uh, but it wasn't until. Uh, the 60s, 1660s, where the tradition of today's Santa Claus really began, it actually began here in New York, uh, when uh, New York was previously known as New Amsterdam. The Dutch had control of the area, called it New Amsterdam, and they had their tradition of uh, St. Nicholas called Sankt Heer Nicolas, or a nickname for him was Sinterklaas. And so when they were taken back over by the British, the English speakers, uh, as they embraced that tradition as well, but the word Santa Claus or the name Sinterklaas slowly morphed into Santa Claus as the English uh, were trying to pronounce it. And so it was interesting. So that was the 1600s. Fast forward to the 1700s in the earliest documented case of the word or the name Santa Claus was in a New York paper in 1773 when they, uh, the article was talking about Dutch families and a group called the Sons of Nicholas uh, were uh, celebrating St. Nicholas Day. And they said St. Nicholas, otherwise known as Santa Claus. So that was the earliest documented record that, that I could find as far as uh, how he became Santa Claus. Then in 1804, 1804, yeah, uh, a gentleman called John Pittard started the New York Historical Society. And one of his Christmas presents he had given out was uh, St. Nicholas uh, wooden figures or or wooden gifts uh, of St. Nicholas, but in the background had... Uh, a chimney with stockings with toys and fruit in it. So that started that little tradition there. 
and then jump to 1809 with Washington Irving. He joined the New New uh, York Historical Society, and uh, he wrote the book A History of New York. If that sounds right. Um, yeah, the history of New York. And then in there, and uh, John Petard had proclaimed St. Nicholas the saint of New York, and uh, Washington Irving continued that in his book. And then Washington Irving uh, gave some characteristics to the modern-day Santa Claus with uh, smoking a pipe, uh, you know, having a knowing look, putting a finger to his nose. Um, so he continued the tradition of St. Nicholas, and then fast forward to 1823 when Clement Moore, uh, who was a New Yorker, uh, wrote the poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas. We know it today as Twas the Night Before Christmas, but the original title was A Visit from St. Nicholas. And that's when, uh, you know, talk about reindeer and sleigh and coming down the chimney. And he added so much more to the modern day Santa Claus uh, that we have today. And then, so finally we have... Fast forward to the 1880s, and here we're back in New York, and then we have Thomas Nast, uh, who's a political cartoonist, uh, but he drew back on images of his childhood uh, and drew what we would call probably the most modern-day Santa Claus with a red suit and beard and and uh, being a portly uh, gentleman and jolly, and, and so... Uh, it's interesting. So our, our American version of Santa Claus has really been rooted out of the New York City, which is really interesting. Now, let me ask you something. We're going back. You said he was born in 270. I mean, there were probably hundreds of saints from that time period. Why is St. Nicholas the one that's most remembered uh, from that time period? This is just personal. Uh, well, I think part of it was for sure because of his location. Again, he was on in that port city. He grew up in Patara, uh, which was a port city. And then he became a bishop of Myra, which is a port city. So his whole life he was in uh, a spot that was very influential as far as uh, having contact with people from all over the world and, and him being such a, a generous, caring, giving, loving uh, person uh, that, uh, you know, people took his, his story back home with them. And then there are, to be a, a saint, considered a saint in the Catholic Church, there have to be some miracles involved also. And so he's uh, recognized as ha having done some miracles. Uh, one was uh, when he was a child and he was going to see his teacher and there was a woman with a withered hand uh, on the way and he uh, laid his hands on her hand and prayed for her and her hand was healed. So that was one of the earliest miracles uh, that were was recorded of, of St. Nicholas. Another one is uh, a sailor. Uh, there was a storm and, and a sailor had died and uh, he had prayed over the sailor and he came back to life. And that was a, another miracle. So so I think that's one reason why he's the patron saint of sailors. And of course, uh, you know, the, as far as children, he loved children and was well known as far as caring for for orphan children and, and children in general. How reliable do you think those stories are? I mean, it is 2000 years ago. Somebody probably just didn't pull them out of the air. There was probably some fact to the stories. Yeah, I, I can't go back and give you uh, a resources off the top of my head. Um, I do have some in, in uh, the back of my book. Um, but how reliable? Uh, 
yeah, I, I can't say, you know, but but he's so embedded in so many cultures around the world. Uh, and, you know, over these two millennia since he's been around, it's it's, uh, you know, it's fair to say that there's definitely something uh, there's, you know, good they're as solid, as reliable as as anything from historically from that period of time. Now, when did Saint Nicholas pass away? Um, oh boy. See in my mind I I have that he's never passed away and uh in my book uh that that leaves it up to the reader to decide. <laughs> but uh when historically, let's see, he I think it was I want to say 363 AD. So 270 to 363. No. 343, 343. So that was because I think I had in my mind he was uh, like 63 or 73. So so he was alive dates. when the Roman Empire turned to Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And so he was around uh, uh, when uh, Constantine, I have in my book uh, an, an, a chapter where he uh, actually meets Constantine and the Empress Prisca and Valeria, who were true historical characters, they were Emperor Diocletian's wife and daughter, who, interestingly enough, were Christians or became Christians, even though their husband, uh, you know, persecuted them. They actually became Christians and later became saints themselves. And then at the same time, Constantine, as you know, history shows that he had, had a... Uh, a partiality towards Christians as well. And then it later became the Christian uh, religion of the Roman empire. But interesting enough that in 325 AD, uh, the council of Nicaea, uh, Constantine had brought 300 bishops from around the world together at, to the council of Nicaea to get organized because he was a little frustrated that there were different beliefs going on uh, in different Christian sects. So he brought all these, uh, bishops together to get on the same page on some things such as uh, the nature of the Holy Spirit and when Easter would be celebrated. And interesting enough, Nicholas was part of that council. Uh, and it was believed that a lot of his uh, uh, beliefs were accepted at that council. Wayne, why did you write this book? What do you want the reader to get out of it? Well, I originally wrote it uh, in 2008. I went through a divorce, and so tough year. The holidays rolled around, and uh, you know, money was tighter going from two incomes to one. And uh, I wanted to make the season more meaningful for my children. And so I always knew there was a connection between Santa Claus and St. Nicholas, but I didn't really know what it was, didn't really know much about them. So that's when I started doing research that holiday season. And, and I discovered, uh, you know, all the things we've been talking about and I shared those with my kids and, and it really just impacted us as far as the true meaning of Christmas, remembering that, you know, it is a religious holiday. It is, uh, the celebration of, uh, God's plan to redeem mankind, humankind, and and reconcile us back to him, to have a personal, intimate relationship with him and the birth of Jesus. And so it's really Jesus's birthday. So I, I found that we we did three things that uh, Christmas season. We, we shifted from being self-centered to more God-centered, family-centered, and uh, other-centered. 
And so God-centered, just what I was talking about, the, you know, the birth of Jesus, uh, family-centered. So we started uh, uh, ushered with the kids. You know, I'm more about doing than having. I'd much rather do things with them and uh, make memories and have fun rather than buy a bunch of things that were just going to be given away in a year. And so we started uh, really focusing on family time, such as... Uh, you know, one of our favorite things was just making popcorn and cuddling on the couch and watching Christmas movies and TV shows. Uh, we'd bake, we'd uh, go to any of the festivities in town, you know, the parades and the, the you know, driving around seeing the lights and just having more family time, being more family oriented. And then lastly, uh, other centered. So one thing, my kids were eight and 11 at the time. And so they were just past the, the believing in Santa Claus stage. Uh, and so uh, tried to make it into a celebration, a rite of passage where, okay, you don't believe in Santa Claus. You figured that out. So now you moved either from being a big kid to, I mean, a little kid to a big kid, or you're, you're moving from uh, being a kid to an adult. And so now what happens is if you don't believe in Santa Claus anymore, now you become Santa Claus. And so now we get to go out and bless other people, just like Santa Claus would do. And that we would, uh, you know, one, one of the, our favorite things was doing Operation Shoebox through Good Samaritan, where you get shoebox and you fill it with goodies and school supplies and stuff. And, and they send them to third world countries uh, to give to kids in third world countries. And we'd take them shopping. And so doing activities to get, think about other people, not so much ourselves. Um, you know, of course, volunteering at the, you know, local food bank and, and things like that, or even, um, leaving cookies on the porch of our neighbor, uh, you know, and trying to do it in secret like Santa does. And, uh, so yeah, so becoming more God centered, family centered and other centered. And, And so going back to your question, uh, that's my hope for, uh, whoever reads the book that, that they'll be just touched and blessed during the holiday season. And uh, think of, uh, remember what the holiday's all about. And hopefully, uh, you know, I, have, I have a saying that whoever reads it will be touched, taught, and entertained. Uh, that they'll be touched somehow, some way, uh, by a character. They'll connect with a character. There's all, uh, quite a vi- wide range of characters in the book. Uh, and hopefully, you know, you'll connect with somebody in there. Uh, and then taught as far as learning more about Christmas, uh, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, uh, Jesus, Christianity, and, uh, and entertained. Hopefully it's a fun read. I tried to make, uh, uh, you know, so historically it follows, you know, what we do know about St. Nicholas as much as possible, but I tried to do it in a, a fun and entertaining way. And I also split it up into 30 chapters, that could be read the 30 days before Christmas, starting on November 25th, uh, kind of like devotions. And I do have a devotion at the end of every chapter to go deeper with the content in that chapter uh, if, if people choose to. Of course, it's optional. The name of the book, The Gospel of Santa Claus, inspired by the true story of St. Nicholas, the author, Wayne Vandeval. Wayne, where can we get the book? Uh, well, I'm blessed. It's everywhere. So you can jump online. My website is thegospelofsantaclaus.com, and you could go to the purchase page, but there it has links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart uh, for the print book. Uh, it's also available in any bookstore if you'd like to support your local bookstore. 
Uh, you can go in there. If they're not carrying it, if they don't have it, they can order it for you. Pretty much any bookstore in the world. Uh, the ebook is available, Kindle, Nook, Kobo, Smashwords. And I'm really excited. The audiobook is just out as of last week on uh, Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. And I'm really excited about that because my narrator, he does uh, cartoons. And so he did a unique voice for every single character in the book. So it's really, really a fun listen. The Gospel of Santa Claus. Wayne, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Yeah, thank you for having me. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. From our family to yours, I wish you a happy and healthy new year. Oh, give me a home where there's no hope of Rome, where there's nothing but Protestant state. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Presently, now we have a guest we're very privileged to have, and he's been on the show twice before. One time, he talked about his autobiographical book, Race with the Devil. The next time, he talked about Death Comes to the War Poet. Today, he's talking about his latest book, but welcome to the show, Joe Pierce. Oh, my pleasure, as always. You know what? Let's go back a little bit in time. Race with the Devil. Very interesting story. Can you just summarize it for our audience, what, what it's about? Yeah, I mean, basically, the summary is almost sort of encapsulated by the subtitle. Um, so the book's called Race with the Devil, My Journey from Racial Hatred to Rational Love. So as a young man, I was involved in radical uh, neo-Nazi white supremacist politics. And largely through the reading of uh, a great English writer such as G.K. Chesterton, I came uh, eventually, by, um, by the grace of God, um, to conversion to the Catholic Church and left uh those bad ideas and that bigotry and that hatred behind me, thanks be to God. You know, now some people have commented to me, how can somebody really be so full of hate and, and 
convert completely? Well, I mean, you know, I would say one thing. I mean, at the time, I was convinced it was a purely rational process. In other words, you know, reading Chesterton and then eventually Thomas Aquinas and C.S. Lewis and, uh, and, and books on Catholic doctrine and apologetics. Um, but I realized, looking back in retrospect, that something else was happening at the same time, and that was healing. Uh, because, you know, some of my beliefs were not rational, and if they're not rational, then you can't reason your way out of them. Um, so what was needed was, was healing to, to, so that the hatred and, and resentment uh, and negativity in my heart um, could, could be healed. And that clearly was happening uh, at the same time as, as, as my reading of these books that were leading my reason in the right direction. So, um, yeah, it takes the grace of God, basically. What some people were shocked at on when we were talking about the book, you were in jail in, in Great Britain for hate speech. Yes. I mean, you know, in England, uh, it's illegal under something called the Race Relations Act to publish material that's deemed likely to incite racial hatred. Now, I'm very much ashamed of what I wrote. I'm ashamed of the magazine I edited that contained those sort of sentiments and that sort of ideology. But I do think it's dangerous to have hate crimes on the statute book because they end up being used against uh, all sorts of people that are not as pernicious as neo-Nazis. So, for instance, in England now, I know that uh, Christians have been threatened with imprisonment for just preaching traditional Christian morality. So, yeah, hate crimes are a dangerous, a two-edged sword, very dangerous thing to have on the statute book. I guess that's enough for the past. Literature, what every Catholic should know. What should we know? Well, first of all, we should know that literature is important for Catholics to know. And uh, what, what I say in the opening chapter of my book, Why Should Catholics Know uh, the Great Literature, is that, that God himself um, basically reveals his most important truths to us by means of telling us a story, or in fact stories. The main story, of course, is the story of salvation history. We can see history as his story, and the most powerful story within that story, without that, that within that story of history, is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, that God reveals himself to us um, by entering into our story, which is our history. And then within that story, uh, Jesus himself teaches us some of the most powerful lessons we need to learn about who he is and how we're meant to react and relate to him and to our neighbor through his parables, which are themselves works of fiction. Um, uh, the, you know, the, the prodigal son never existed in history. He's a figment of our Lord's imagination. But through parables such as that, we learn some of the most valuable lessons about ourselves, our neighbors, and our place in the cosmos. All right, so what type of literature? You're not just talking about the Bible, though, as literature. Well, yes. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the, the, the God tells us uh, some of the most valuable lessons about uh, about who we are through the telling of story, including the stories in the Bible. But throughout history, other stories have, have been told by us that teach us things about the truth. We're made in the image of God, and part of the image of God in which we're made is the imagination, the imagination, and we're meant to use our imagination to show each other the truth. So there have been great storytellers that have conveyed truth to us throughout the history of West and civilization from the time of Homer and the time of the ancient Greeks right through to the 20th century with writers like J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, etc. Now, I understand you divide literary history in three segments. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, well, basically, uh, the, 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 first of all, these the what I call the Virgin Muse. This is the time before Christ, where we have you know the Greeks as pagans that are like virgins awaiting the coming of the bridegroom, uh, who is Christ. And so we see, if you like, all sorts of prefigurements and and uh, and presentiments about the, the nature of God and salvation and suffering uh, in the in the great Greek writers. So that's what I call the the the, 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 the 
time of, if you like, civilization's virginity. And then following the coming of the bridegroom, following the coming of Christ, we enter the time of uh, Christendom, uh, and it's the time of enchantment, um, when we see the world as being something beautiful made by God as the creator, uh, and that informs our understanding of the cosmos. And then we have what I call the period of the disenchantment, uh, or the period of, if you like, the divorcee um, that, that that turns it turns her back on the bridegroom, uh, and that's the, the the period of disenchantment is you know what the world sometimes calls the enlightenment, but of course it's not enlightened but in darkened uh, this 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 failure to see the world in which we're living as as chesterton would say not the best of all possible worlds but the best of all, all impossible worlds we're living in the midst of a miracle now the enchanted imagination understands that the disenchanted imagination uh that we have in the, in the modern world does not understand that somebody going to high school right now or beginning college what authors do you recommend that they read well, I mean, I, the, the absolute giants of, of, of Western civilization should be known by everybody. So certainly the great works by Homer, the great works by the, 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 the Divine Comedy by Dante, and some of the great plays of Shakespeare, I think, are absolutely priceless and invaluable uh, to have as our deposit of knowledge that lead us to a greater understanding of who we are and where we fit into the nature of things. Where can somebody learn more about Joe Pierce? Where, where can we learn more about your book? Well, my, my personal website is jpierce.co, um, and um, if uh, if they go there, they'll, they'll they'll find out more about me and what I'm doing. This particular book, Literature: What Every Catholic Should Know, if they go to everycatholic.org/forward/slash/literature, the book will be there. All right. Now you mentioned, of course, your your past life, and and what are you doing today for a living outside of writing a book every month? <laughs> I wish, actually. I'm never happier than when I'm writing a book. Um, well, my, my official position at the moment is Director of Book Publishing of the Augustine Institute, who are based in Denver. So I, I, I travel out there regularly, uh, but I work remotely from my home in South Carolina the rest of the time. So, you know, I, 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 so I'm a, a book publishing, editing, writing, speaking, and not so much teaching these days. Well, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. We look forward to your next book, whatever it is. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, as always. Thanks again to Joe Pierce. You know, since the last time Joe Pierce has been on our show, which is maybe a year, I think he's written three, four books. The guy is a prolific writer. And, Michael, you know, when we're talking to Joe, you had a comment about uh, who he writes about and the importance of the, of the people he writes about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, growing up in that turbulent time period in Northern Ireland with the ethnic hatreds and everything, being part of the skinhead move movement and eventually waking up, it's one of those things, you know, the pop culture of that time did not offer the meaning and the purpose that a young man would have been looking for. And he discovered that um, while he was in prison through writers like uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and G.K. Chesterton. And when you read them, there's a, there's a, there's a reason for things happening. There's, a perp there's an order to the world that comes through faith in large part, which is part of what, as he's said many times, saved him and brought him sanity and hope. Now, getting back to our other author, Wayne Vanderwall, you know, it helped me focus on the fact that we all know it, but that St. Nicholas was a real person, not just a, not just a guy on a sled, you know, that you right, have a picture right. of. Probably a tough guy when you think about it, you know, because he was there at Nicaea. You talk about him kicking out heretics, all this kind of stuff. So it wasn't all just jolly old St. Nick. There was, a, there was a real, and this is somebody who lived through Diocletian, and everyone talks about, you know, Caligula, Nero, Tiberius, but... Diocletian gets forgotten for how bad he was when it comes to the religious persecution and everything, partially because 
he was a competent emperor, partially because he wasn't his personal excesses weren't as great, but he was, as far as a tyrant goes, certainly one of the worst. And Nicholas lived through that only eventually to see finally the Christianity become tolerated under Constantine at the after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And I didn't realize Diocletian's children were Christians. I I actually learned that in the interview as well. Okay, you know, and it's turbulent times. I mean. St. Nicholas, when he's born in, in 270, Christians are persecuted. To be a Christian meant you could give up your life. You know, let's remember there are Christians today that are being persecuted and their lives are being threatened. Because of circumstances, Father Paul was not able to join us over the last uh, month or so. We were hoping to have him on our show. So let's let's not forget Father Paul and his parish, his flock. And let's not forget to say a, a, a prayer for the Christians in the Middle East. You know, that's one thing he says every day, if you can say a short prayer for the Christians in the Middle East, so they're not forgotten, so we know they're there, because the worst thing that can happen to you is to be forgotten. Absolutely. Absolutely. Prayer for everybody this Christmas. All right. Well, we're coming into the Christmas season. We're going to be here next week at the same time. Now, I, if I'm hearing correctly, I hear David Kincaid, you know, start, starting to, to, you know, take us home. And again, we are on hollowed ground. This station is headquartered at 111 Broadway, right next to Trinity Church, right next to the graveyard where Alexander Hamilton, Robert Fulton are buried. So, David, we're on hollowed ground. Bye-bye, everybody. To sing this we are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan, Attorneys at Law, PLLC.